I was once reading a book, and it was a secular book, but I would say that this book, of all, I don't endorse secular books that much, I don't read that many of them, but this one is a good book. And the title of the book is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's a book that sold, you ever read the book? I told you later about the book. It's, uh, it's of the, I don't read that many of these books, but this book <laughs> is good. Of the books, I think it sold over 15 million copies. It's a good book. Anyhow, I was once reading in this book. He has one of these thing concepts called one of these habits. It's to be proactive. It's to be a person that understands that you're responsible for your own life and you take care of your own life and you determine, and you're, you have to realize how much control you have. And it's really a Jewish concept, Bechira, it means you have free will, and you decide your own, you decide your future, you decide how you react to things in your life. And he gave an example of this person who was excommunicated by all his leaders of his community, who his entire family decided to his entire family decided to remove themselves from him and never wanted to know him again, never hear from him ever again. And they sent him away to a foreign country to never hear from him again. The man was taken and thrown into, was thrown into jail, and then he was then working, boarding in someone's house, and was accused of raping the man's wife. And then the man was thrown into jail again, and the man's name was? Yosef HaTzadik. And he says in the book, Joseph from the Bible. And when I heard it, I was like, wow. That's his example. It's a good example. That was his example in this book. His key example of this concept was Joseph in the Bible. Yosef HaTzadik. That Yosef went through all these different ordeals in his life. And he still remained and eventually become the second in command. And to become almost the leader of Egypt. And so what I want to discuss today, even though it's on Hanukkah, last week we did Hanukkah, this week we're not going to do Hanukkah, because these parashiyot are too important to just totally disregard them. And so this week we're going to discuss where Yosef got this strength, and what was the strength of Yosef, and what made Yosef Yosef. What made him that person that could survive 20 years in Egypt without any family, being away from everybody he knew, being disconnected from any lifestyle that he was used to at the age of 17. He's not going to see his family till he's in his late 30s and he still remained and actually grew in the circumstance he was in. And so we want to see and look at what was the midah and the characteristics and the strength that he had. And so in order to answer this question, we're going to ask a few more questions. You know us. So we're going to go to the end of this week's parashat. Parashat Miketz. You know the story of Yosef, the general story. He's in Egypt, Potiphar's house. He's then taken, he's then he's put into jail because he's accused of, of being with his wife. And then he's in jail for a number of years and he sees the two Saramashkin, Sarafin, the two workers in Paro's palace. They have dreams. He interprets their dreams. He tells one of them, the one who is going to be saved, he tells him to remember him, remember him. He doesn't remember him for two years until Paro has dreams and he's looking for people to interpret his dreams. And this Saddam Ashkin stands before Paro and he says, I remember this guy in jail who was good at interpreting dreams. And so he brings Yosef and Yosef stands and interprets the dreams and tells him about seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And eventually the brothers come down to Mitzrayim because they have no money. So the brothers come, they have no food, excuse me. So the brothers come down to Mitzrayim and Yosef starts this whole accusation of what they are and what they're doing wrong and, 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 uh, and he accused them of being spies and coming in as spies and having agendas. And eventually he sends them back and he tells them bring back Binyamin. They bring back Benjamin, he sends them back home again a second time, and this time in all their bags he leaves their money, and in Benjamin's bag he leaves this cup, this goblet that was considered his special cup, and he forces them to come back to Egypt. I just gave you two parashiyot in 90 seconds, okay? 
I'm sure you know basically the story. I'm just trying to remind you of the point so that when we get back into it, you'll be fresh. My question is, this last stage of the story. Yosef does something. He puts the cup into the bag of Binyamin. Now, I know why he put the cup into the bag of Binyamin. Because he wanted to frame Binyamin. And he wanted them to, they wanted them to think that Binyamin actually stole the cup. Bring Binyamin back and have the brothers come back to Egypt and be accused of stealing. And be accused, accused Binyamin and only Binyamin so that he would have all the brothers defend Binyamin. And the goal is that they defend Binyamin. It would be like a kapara for them not defending him 20 years earlier. That was the plan. But here's my question. Why do you put the money in everyone's bag? What was the point of that? If you put the money in everyone's bag, then you see that they're all going to know that they didn't steal the money. So they're all going to know that this is a game. If you put it only in Benjamin's bag, then they're going to think, you know, maybe Benjamin didn't tell us. And Benjamin actually stole it. And it's true that the brothers, the Midrash says that when the brothers saw that the cup was in Benjamin's bag and no one else's, they accused him of stealing. They said, you're just like your mother. Your mother stole. You also steal. Your mother stole the idols from Lavan. You also steal. That was their accusation that he, that he actually, that he actually stole it. But then why is he putting the money in all their bags? And then why, when the man comes to check, he sends a messenger to go check the bags, and he checks every bag, every single bag, until he gets to Binyamin. Why does the guy just do some random checks? And that's it. And then what happens is, again, they're talking to Yosef, and, excuse me, they're talking to this messenger, and the messenger says, I want Binyamin. He says, the rest of you are free, I want Binyamin. And the brothers said, no, no, we're all coming back. They all come back to Egypt. They talk to Yosef. And they tell Yosef, take us all as slaves. You just said you're all free. What are they coming back again and asking to be slaves? Are you following me? Are you with me? You've got to take your mind into this part of the parasha, into this part of the story. And what I'm asking is that a lot of the details in this part of the story seem to be funny. Why is he putting money in all their bags? Why is he checking all their bags if he... You know, if the guy's checking and he knows where it is anyhow, the whole thing's a sketch. So check four bags so that you don't look like you know. And that's it. Why do you have to check every single bag? And then why are the brothers asking to be slaves after you already told them you are free, you don't have to worry about it. So again, like I said, what I want to try to do is understand who yourself was. And understand how yourself worked. And understand what his strength was. And his strength is a strength that really is something that we... The Jewish people need maybe the most because our lives represent his in the of all the people in the Torah maybe our lives are most like his we're an abandoned people in a foreign country in a foreign land with a lifestyle that's very different and he had that same he was a family alone in Egypt with nobody around him and so the strength that he has the strength that we hope that we can also have so like I said, we're going to find his strength. And we're going to find his strength actually in a mistake that he did. Mistake. The Pasuk it says, the Midrash says like this, it says that is a Pasuk. I forgot to quote the Pasuk. So I'm not going to give you the exact Pasuk. But the Pasuk says that praise is a person that has faith in Hashem. That has bitachon in Hashem. And who is that? Yosef. And but don't be like a person that puts their faith in other things. Just like Yosef. What did Yosef do when he was in jail and the, one of the, the Sarah Mashkin was leaving jail? He told him, please remember me and don't forget me. He said it twice to remember him and because he said it twice, don't forget me, he was punished that he had two extra years in jail. He could have gone out right away. Hashem made him stay in an extra two years because he told the Sarah Mashkin twice, don't forget me. Lack of faith. This is a very strange thing. You're telling me the example of faith is Yosef. And then you're telling me that, the, that, that what's your lack, example of lack of faith? Yosef. I mean, it's the same. It's one line after the other. It doesn't, how does it work? How does it fit? The answer is that you see, look at this again. What was Yosef's mistake? What was his mistake? Say, remember me twice. Now, put yourself in that position. You're in jail for years. Okay? You've been away from your family for years and years. Okay? He's been away from his family for a good ten years. Okay? Ten years. 
and he's been in jail for years. Now you have this person who you just helped, who you maybe as an opportunity is going to go see the king soon. Wouldn't you be, I'd be saying, don't forget me, don't forget me, please remember, give him notes, give him cards, give him anything to remember, give him gifts, I'd be reminding him 4,800 times, don't forget me twice, is a sin. Right, it's outlandish, you hear lack of faith, you want to talk lack of faith. This does not seem to be the example that I would use of lack of faith. This would be my least example. To me, I, I can't even believe that he only said it twice. Right? I would say it literally 400 times. I would somehow interpret the dreams that it means get me out. Not get you out. That, what he's doing is that he says, remember me twice. This is a problem. So what's the answer? The answer is, there's a Gemara uh, and Berachot. I could talk about Kolel, right? Yeah, I'm going to talk about Kolel. Gemara and Berachot says, that there was two ways of living, two lifestyles. And really the truth is, people don't know this Gemara well enough, because it really explains everything. And this one little Gemara explains the whole concept of Kolel and not Kolel in this Gemara. Gemara says there were two approaches to life. One was the approach of Rabbi Ishmael, and the other one was the approach of Rabbi Ba Yochai. The approach of Rabbi Ishmael was, and he brings it from Pesukim, that a man has to work, earn a living, and study. Has to do both. A man is obligated to earn a living and study. Uh, yes, both are the obligation of every man. Rabbi Shemur Ba Yochai says, no. All you do is study, and when you're studying and serving Hashem, He takes care of your finances. Don't worry about it. That's the Gemara says. Two opinions in Berachot. And the Gemara then says that many people tried to do like Rabbi Shemur Ba Yochai, which is to study all the time and not work, and they failed. It didn't work. And many people tried like Rabbi Shemuel to earn a living, and it worked. That's the Gemara. And so, most commentaries explain this Gemara, everybody from the Rambam down till now, explain the Gemara, that the message of the Gemara is that for most people, the way you're supposed to live is like Rabbi Ishmael. And that means that you work, you earn a living, you make sure you study and you go to classes and you learn as much as you can. But of course, the obligation of every man and every person is to support themselves. And that's how most people are supposed to live. But then there are some people who can live who have that dedication, have that commitment, have that faith, who can live like Yishimon Ba Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Ba Yochai for himself, it worked. He lived in a cave with his son with no food for years. So it worked for him. So for individuals, it can work. For the masses, you have to go like Rabbi Yishmael. But for individuals who choose this and who have enough faith to live like this, they can live like Rabbi Shimon Ba Yochai. And this is really the concept of Kolel today is this same thing that it's not for everybody to be able to sit and study for 10 years and not earn a living. For a majority of the people, and most people, most Jewish people, even good religious Torah people, they have an obligation to earn a living, support their family, and study, and also make sure, of course, that their learning and Torah is a very big, part, important part of their life. But for individuals, and for certain people, they can do if they choose to live like Yishimu Ba Yochai, where obviously they have to have some kind of plan, they can't just be ridiculous, but they can say, that, you know what, I don't have every pl- penny planned out for the next 10 years, and I don't have my long-term financial goals worked out, okay? There are plenty of people who do have their long-term financial goals worked out, and that didn't work either, so this, yeah. that's on the side. But, the, the, like a lot of people said, a lot of people I know said with, where they have to the Madoff story, Thank God, I don't have money like that to ever have problems like that. But then there's, but, so, but even if you, you have a right to say for certain individuals that you know what, I don't want to live, I'm going to live studying and dedicated to Hashem, that's how I'm going to live. Yosef HaSadiq was one of those people. Yosef HaSadiq saw in every step of his life the hand of God. He saw the hand of God when he was in Potiphar's house. He saw the hand of God of how he was almost killed and then put into a pit and not killed in the pit. And there were snakes and scorpions. He still wasn't killed. And how he was sent, and how he was sent as to slavery. And it happened to be that she says that the people that were bar- that were taking him into slavery happened to have good smelling spices, not bad smelling spices, on their trucks that they're taking him in. 
Because he saw the hand of Hashem in every step. Hashem was taking care of him for 25 hours. He saw the hand of God. He was a man who lived by that hand of God. And if a man who lived like that, for him, he shouldn't have said, don't forget me. What that means is you see yourself's greatness and you see his level of faith in his mistake. Because for most of us, for every single one of us in this room, what he did would not have been a mistake. What he did would have been regular, normal, what you do. But for yourself, who as a man on a great level of faith, this was a problem. And so therefore the same pasuk that shows us the man of faith is yourself, shows us also that that man, that that man, that what, how, you want to see how great his faith is? You want to see how great his level of bitachon is? You want to see how great his level is? It's so great that when he says, don't forget me twice, that's called a mistake. That's how great he is. So therefore the pasuk fits all in one. The Chazon Ish explains a little further what his lack of faith was. And this is really where the point that I'm trying to get to and the Midah of Yosef that I'd like to focus on. He says, here's why what was Yosef's mistake, quote unquote, when he said, don't forget me twice. He says, the mistake was that in reality, this little Saramashkin, when he's being this, which is this servant of the king, when he's being let out of jail, there's no way he's doing anything for Yosef. In reality, naturally, he doesn't have the power. He's a little guy who does, who makes, pours the king's drink and he just got out of jail. He's not thinking about Yosef. And Yosef, he says, should have known that there was, in reality, there was no real natural way that this man could have saved him. And to tell you the truth, it wasn't natural how he saved him. How did he save him? Only two years later when the king had this crazy dream and no one in his whole palace could interpret it, so finally he resorted to this little guy who came up with the fact that I know someone. But naturally there's no way this man could have interpreted it. And so therefore Yosef telling him to remember me was an act of desperation. It wasn't really hishtadlut. It was just being desperate. Trying something that has no real hope of really working. And so therefore, Yosef, again, on his level, should never have acted desperate. And the truth is, if you see Yosef, his greatest midah that he had throughout the whole time, through everything, is this, that he was extremely composed. Throughout the whole ordeal, he's going to meet his brothers, he's going to deal with his brothers, through the entire thing, he's extremely, like I said, composed, disciplined. He's not... He never is flustered. He's never getting exasperated. He's doing everything calculated and purposeful. And every move he's making, which brother he picks to put into jail, what he tells them, how he deals with them. Every step of the way is a man with unbelievable composure. And to me, that midah is a phenomenal midah to have. And that is that strength to be able to go through situations and deal with different things and be able to not get flustered, not get extremely emotional. And you'll see, we're going to show a few examples throughout the story, that in every step of the story, he's able to deal with it the way it's appropriate to be dealt. And so therefore, his one mistake through the 20 years, how he dealt with his brothers is never considered a mistake. The one mistake through the 20 years was him acting a little desperate, asking a guy who probably couldn't have helped him, asking him twice to remember him. That was a little desperation. The rest of the time, he was able to be entirely and totally disciplined. That's a strength. I'm sure we all think about that. We wish sometimes that we had. It's the ability to go through a crisis or go through something bad or good or so, even something good or something bad or just any regular thing or deal with, and any way you deal to be able to really, truly be composed. I'm going to give you an example. It's a man example. Later on, I'll give lady examples, okay? I'm going to give you a man example. It's a sport example. There's this... You're not going to know what I'm talking about? Should I just... Should I bother? I'll bother. You ever hear this position called the quarterback? Yeah. You heard of a quarterback, yeah? You know what a quarterback is. Okay, good. Quarterback is the guy who throws the ball. Now, I don't know if you ever saw... You go outside. I'm sure you've seen sometimes your son, your husband, someone. Take a football and throw it. And throw it pretty far. So why isn't he in the NFL making $10 million a year as a quarterback? What's the difference between your son outside who can throw pretty far, pretty accurate, his friend's running and he goes and he catches the ball. How come he can catch it and how come he can throw it and he's not making all kinds of money as an NFL quarterback? There's only 30 guys that are able to be real NFL quarterbacks. What's the difference? 
What? Yeah, exactly. That's the difference. The difference is one simple thing. Is that NFL quarterback has 10 people running in his face, all on an average of 6'3", 300 pounds, all running towards him, about to throw him to the ground in literally a second to a second and a half from now. And at that time, he has to throw the ball. To be able to throw the ball in your backyard, anyone can do that. But to be able to throw your ball with, like you said, 11 300-pound monsters coming in your face about to throw you to the ground with no regard for who you are, what your life is, they don't care where your head goes, just hit the ground. When you have 11 of those people get to still throw the ball with accuracy, that's talent. Quarterback has that discipline. Yosef Asadik, the reason why he was chosen of all the brothers to be the one to go to Egypt is because he possessed that composure. He can be through every stress and every crisis and still stand like a quarterback in the middle of people hitting him and crises happening and not knowing where what's going to happen tomorrow, sitting in jail. You know, you think of him in jail with hindsight. You think of him in jail for a little while. For years. And still remain, Yosef Asadik, still remain, as like I told you in that book, the example of Joseph, the man who can stand through it all. That was his greatest, his greatest midah. I just read this about, there's a rabbi named Reb Schwab. You heard of Reb Schwab? He's recently in Muncie. I think in Muncie. Or Washington Heights, maybe. Anyhow, he, he says this story. He says this was the first disappointment of his life that he could remember. Was when he was a little kid. He was a little kid. He was sitting... And they were, a photographer came to take pictures of him and his siblings. So you know how the photographers work? They come. The guy comes and he puts a background behind you. And then he gives you, like the kids, he gives them toys, a block, a brick, you know, a chair, some little toys to sit with, a horse, to get them to smile and all that. And then he gets behind, so the photographer gives all the kids the toys and whatever they need. He stands behind his camera, you know, old-time camera, puts a black cloth up on top of him, stands behind the camera, and takes the picture. And then a second later, everyone gets up, and the photographer comes over to them and takes their toys. And he says, he remembers, he was four years old, and he couldn't believe it. The man took my toys. He says, until now, I never had someone give me toys and take it back. You give me my toys when my grandma gave me toys and when my parents gave me toys, when my aunts and uncles gave me toys, they gave me toys. This man gave me toys and took it back. He says he remembers it distinctly in his mind as a disappointment. He couldn't believe, he couldn't get over it that the man took my toys. He gave it to me and took it back. He was so upset, so annoyed. He says, later on when he grew up, he says, that's how our whole life is. As Hashem gives us toys. Hashem gives us things all temporarily. He gives us things to give us, to sort of deal with, to create different circumstances, different situations. He gives us props for now. He gives us props for when we're 15. He gives us props for when we're 25. He gives us props for different ages and different stages of our lives. Different toys. And they come and they go and they're really there for a specific purpose. And therefore, don't get crazy. Don't get so excited and don't get so upset because it's just here for the time. It's for this picture. Hashem wants to take a picture now. He wants to see how you deal with it now. So He gives you these props. This car, this kid, this clothing, this issue, this uh, global crisis. He gives you toys for today to deal with today. And then, of course, He's going to take them away. He's going to give you a new set of toys. Think about the toys you had this year and the toys you had last year. It's a whole different set of stuff. It's a whole different set of circumstances. Think of the toys you had this year and the toys you had ten years ago. Entirely different. And so you know what? The toys you have today and the toys you have in ten years from now are also going to be different. And our job is to be disciplined throughout the entire ordeal. Yosef went through everything and still remained Yosef HaTzadik. Still remained that great and totally composed man. Let me give you my first example of this composure. The Emet Liyakov asked a question. He says, one of his students asked him this question. He says, how come... And it's an interesting question. I don't really love the question, but I'll tell you his question. He says, how come the Torah tells us this whole story about the brothers with Yosef and how they treated Yosef? Why isn't that Lashon Hara? That's true. You like the question? Yeah. Why is it a Lashon Hara? Here you're hearing... They say even 
Okay, but that but that's true. But you know, so now here we are. The Torah is giving us this all these details. No, you're right. The Torah is giving us all these details, seemingly negative details about these people. So he gives two answers. He says his initial answer was to say that um, there's a law. Don't use this, but this is the law: is that from the Torah, lashon hara is really about living people. About a dead person is not the same sin from the Torah. So therefore, since the Torah is being written after they all passed away, it's not Lashon Hara. That was his answer. Again, this doesn't apply today because later on the Chachamim made a Cherem that Lashon Hara is even after someone dies. That's, I should have told you the answer, right? Okay, I should have told you, right? Okay. What? Don't use it as an out, please. But he says there's another answer. And this is the answer this is an important answer. This is an important answer to give you perspective on the whole story. Forget about Yosef's tip, we'll get to Yosef in a minute. But perspective on the brothers entirely. He says, the reason why the Torah taught us is because it wasn't Lashon Hara. Because their judgment was not some rash, spur of the moment, jealous reaction. That's not what it was. Their judgment was a clear, responsible judgment. They sat they decided, voted as a verdict that he deserved, out of whatever the deals were, he deserved to have be executed and then later to be sent as a slave. It was a decision. It wasn't some rash, it was a decision. A decision that they say Yitzchak Avinu went along with. A decision that Hashem went along with. That Hashem never revealed to Yaakov because Hashem went along with. It wasn't something bad that they did. It was a calculated and in their minds appropriate decision that they made. And he says, therefore, he's going to explain, he says, how come Yosef never, once Yosef became king, why didn't he send his message to his father? You've heard this question. You must have asked this question. Send a message to his father and tell them, and tell him, you know, hi dad, I'm in Egypt, things are okay. Fadda. Few words wouldn't cost a lot of money. Send it over, one messenger, go to his father, and tell him that everything's good. Why not? That's, but he could have done it. I mean, eventually, was his brothers were going to tell his father anyhow. They were going to do it just in a smart way. So let him figure out how to do it in a smart way. The answer is because one of the reasons is that he. First of all, saw his answer. He says, "He says, you know what? If he would have told his father now, he was afraid that his brothers would come down to Egypt and punish him again, because he understood that his brothers the entire time felt that what they did was right. It wasn't some rash spur of the moment thing that now ten years later they're going to regret. It was something that they would still stay with. And so what Yosef did through the whole story and his ordeal with his brothers." is was going to show them and slowly show them how they made a mistake. And this is where my first example of where you see yourself's composure is after not seeing your brothers for 20 years, no matter how you go, one way or the other, Yosef should have been either extremely angry or extremely nostalgic. One or the other he is supposed to feel. You didn't see a sibling for 20 years that hurt you. Either, like I said, either you'd cry and you'd hug them and kiss them, or you'd kill them. But one or the other you're going to do. And Yosef sees them, and he recognized them, and tells exactly, and the pastor tells us a couple of times, he went inside, cried, came back in, and was able to deal with them, them exactly the way he felt it was appropriate to handle that situation. Again, composure. Discipline. That ability to... That ability to be able to handle it, even when it's getting, like I said, very emotional, to be totally unemotional, was that unbelievable midah that Yosef HaSadik had. Let me give you one example of how I think we're losing this discipline, and we're losing this composure, and we're losing this ability to act based on our mind instead of just becoming, and instead a lot of us are becoming just reactionary people. Recently, I got this letter to my house. It was from a bunch of yeshivot, Flappish, Barapak, a bunch of yeshivot that said that they don't want their students anymore. They're totally outlawing in their schools text messaging. 
And they gave a whole bunch of reasons why they don't like text messaging. And reason number one, what is that? <laughs> they, they create a cyber, uh, you know, group, and it ends up, and they communicate with people that they shouldn't be communicating with, and it also stops, it It makes you not have the same, you know, what you call stichy, like not the same, you're not as afraid, you can send a little message, and maybe they're sending dirty jokes. And all these reasons, I trust them that they're accurate. I've never seen really these reasons on my own personal level to see that these things or people I deal with to see that they're actually communicating in a worse way through text messaging than they are on a regular phone. To me, they're doing all these things on the phone. I'm not sure. But again, if the rabbis are saying it, I trust them. They're more experienced than I do. But their last reason to me is a reason that is extremely important. And that is, they say, nowadays... Kids no longer know how to concentrate. Because what happens is you sit there and two seconds you get a text message. Then you get another text message. And now, like, God forbid to feel that buzz and not react to it. And the truth is, you see it, I'm sure you've experienced it yourself, and you definitely see it with kids even more, is that the text messaging becomes... And I do this with students all the time. All the time. I tell them, try to explain to them, I say, take out your cell phone right now and scroll on your last 10 text messages. And how many of them have any value? So one kid says, oh, it says that my mother's outside waiting for me. I said, oh, that's a good one. That's value. I'll take that one. Don't forget that one. Show me the other ones about the, all the different nonsense. Oh, did you see the show last night? Uh, the, a boy played basketball. You guys stunk. You said, show me. And said, to tell you the truth, gir- uh, to girls, I tell them, chances are 70% of your text messages are total nonsense. Girls, teenage girls. For boys, it's 90%. <laughs> so, for grown-ups, maybe it's 40-50%. But the truth is, what happens is that you can't sit still. Is that the text messaging, the concept of the text messaging makes us, that especially if you have it on you, if you have it in your pocketbook, maybe it helps a little. But if you have it on you, you can't sit still. You have to check the phone, and when it buzzes, you think it always feels like it's some extremely urgent, I must answer right now message. All the time. And what happens is, that you can't concentrate. And we become just reactionary people. We just keep going to the phone, going to the phone, going to the phone, and try it one day. Don't take your phone with you the whole day. It's torture. Torture. Then do it another day. And you'll feel freedom. The first day it's torture. It's horrible. I can't believe it. I feel like everyone's trying to... Then you know what you'll do? You'll get all your missed calls and all your voicemails and all your text messages at 10 o'clock at night. And you'll see there's about two text messages that need to be out of 15. There's about two that need to be responded to now. The other 12, 13 just totally dissolved. They were nothing. They never needed you. They found another way out. You know what I mean? They asked you what the price was of, of tomatoes in the store and they asked someone else. They, That's more to make you phone calls. No, okay. And you're, okay, good. Agreed. But, and you'll see of your voicemails that you'll get whatever it is, however many voicemails you get. I don't know, 5, 10, 20, 25, whatever you get. You'll get them all at once. You respond. And like I said, you'll see yourself. You know what? I survived. And I had a clear head. And I actually went to a class and concentrated on it for an hour. Or whatever I did. Even if it was something that's not as important as a class. But just, I sat and I had a relaxed head. And what's happening, and it's happening to younger generations, but it's happening to older people too, is that we really cannot concentrate. How many times do you see men sitting in shul, and they're sitting in shul responding to their Blackberry? I'm like, it doesn't... And you know what? The truth is, I once gave a class about it, and I said, you know what? I think that it's really disrespectful to the shul. You're sitting there during Chazara, and you're reacting to it. And after I gave the class, I can't tell you how many times I myself was tempted to be doing it, to just to react to something, respond, don't worry, I'm praying, I'll answer you in 20 minutes. Just those reactions. And every time I say, you know what? You just gave a class about it. You can't do it. But the truth is, we're all tempted to be like that. Had I not given the class... I've seen rabbis, I've studied rabbis all together, I've seen rabbis do it. Is that what happens? They don't even, you don't realize, you're not thinking, you just react. And we lose our composure, we lose our discipline, and you could sometimes see that a half hour was wasted. A half hour was wasted on back and forth just being the person that, you don't want to be the one who's the last one to not drop the joke. So she made a joke, you respond to the joke, you have to respond back, and has to, you have to have a line back and forth, and you don't want to be the last one, okay, yeah, like this little nothing that goes back and forth, thank you, thank you, 
Thank you. Right? That's what happens. It's just you keep having to respond to each other back and forth. Because you can't be the one that leaves it. And you just spent a half hour. Because even though the text didn't take so long, but, you know, each time you stop, five minutes and you stop, and we become reactionary, undisciplined people. And the job is like Yosef HaSadiq had, is that he had this ability to be extremely, extremely composed. Like I said, it's throughout the story. Hosea bin Yamin, He'll go inside and cry, come back. He'll deal with Shimon. The Bible says he took, took Shimon, put him in jail. And then once the brothers left, he took him out of jail. But he's dealing with his brothers. He's accused him. Every deal, this Yudah later on comes and gets angry. And Yosef, through the entire time, is composed and calculated, able to do it exactly the way he wanted. I think this, and I think the greatest feeling of satisfaction comes. This is my opinion. The greatest feeling of satisfaction comes when you're able to listen to yourself. When you tell yourself something and you follow it, it feels great. When you say, you know what, tomorrow morning I'm waking up at this time and it's hard for you and you do it. Or you say, tonight I'm going to spend two hours working on this and I'm not going to get distracted and you do it. When you tell yourself something and you're actually able to listen to yourself, I think it's the greatest feeling of satisfaction. You say, you know what, I actually am, I do have some self-control. I'm not just some person who, you know what, everything pulls me apart. To be able to have that discipline, to be able to listen to yourself. Where did Yosef get this? It's emuna, and we can say it started with bitachon, but it's bitachon that he has, and that for the bitachon he had this composure. And where did he get all this, this ability to be composed, to be able to stay Yosef through the whole thing? Where are we now? We have a few minutes. We're okay. There's a pasuk in last week's parasha. It says, Vahi Hashem et Yosef, Hashem was with Yosef, Vahi Ish Matzliach. And he was a man who was successful. This is when he was in Potiphar's house. After he was sent to Egypt, sold as a slave, he was now a slave in Potiphar's house. Everything he was doing was being successful. And it says Hashem was with him, Vahi Ish Matzliach, he was a man that was successful. And I saw some commentaries explain what does it mean he was a man? means he was a man comes to tell you that he, oh, he understood that he was only human. And that even though he was being very successful, he understood that it was all the hand of Hashem. And so he understood himself as just a human being. I have a different explanation. I'll give you this different explanation based on a different Midrash. The Midrash says that when Potiphar's wife approached Yosef to sin, Yosef refused. He says, He told the wife of his master, Hen Adoni, my master, says, I can't because of my master. So the Midrash says two explanations as to what he was saying. My master, the Midrash says, means he was referring to Hashem. And he said, my master has given to the great people of my family, have been used as a sacrifice. Yitzchak Avinu, my grandfather, was used as a Olah, as a sacrifice. If I commit this sin, I won't be worthy of being a sacrifice, and therefore I can't do it. The other version the Midrash says is that my family, great people in my family, have merited to have Hashem appear to them at night. Hashem appeared to Abraham at night, and Yitzchak at night, and Yaakov at night. And so if I'm afraid, if in the middle of the night God's going to come and appear to me, if I commit this sin, I'm going to be tameh, I'm going to be impure, God's not going to be able to appear to me. Therefore, because of my master, I could either be a sacrifice, or God could come and appear to me in the middle of the night, and therefore I can't do what you're asking me to do. I say, that's a very funny reaction. That's why you can't do it? You can't do it because it's a sin. You can't, it's wrong. Why do you have to tell me you can't do it? Because you may be a sacrifice, you may be Akedat Yitzchak once in history, or you may have Hashem come to appear to you at night, which has only happened to three people in the history of the world till then. That's your reason? Just say, it's a sin, I can't do it. Why can't you just say that? Why not? So, what's this? What's this? What, what, what was he saying? What, why use this outlandish, extreme thing instead of saying this simple thing? I'll tell you why. Because the way to be able to overcome a sin is through having very high and mighty goals. I'll give you an example. You take two people. One person, they both want to save money. One person wants to save has enough money to save $2,000 a month. The other person wants to save $200 a month. 
Chances are the one who plans to save $2,000 a month will do it. The one who wants to save $200 a month won't. You know why? Because the one who saved me $2,000 a month says to himself, $2,000 a month is $24,000 a year. Over eight years, that's $100,000. Excuse me, over four years, that's $100,000. Over eight years, it's $200,000. Over 16 years, it's $400,000. So basically, in 20 years from now, I can have a half a million dollars. And so every month when he saves the $2,000, he's saving not $2,000, he's saving a half a million dollars. The other person who's saving $200 a month says, after the whole year, I'm just going to have $1,000. What's that going to do me? It's not that $1,000 I could kill in 10 seconds. So you know what? Forget it. When you're able to see a half a million dollars, you can save the $2,000. I'll give you another example. You ever notice that the people that are the best on diets, I'll give, so I'll give a lady example. People that are best on diets are the people that are the skinniest. The skinny people are great on diets. Heavy people are not so good on diets. You know why that is? Because the heavy person says, you know what? I weigh, I'll take a big number. I weigh 250 pounds. 250 and 260 doesn't make a big difference. The skinny person says, you know what? I weigh 120 pounds. 115. Is that skinny? That's fair? Yeah, okay, good. I weigh 120 pounds. If I, the difference between 120 and 115 is unbelievable. That's huge. Wow, I could get to 110. So I'm on the road to 110. That's unbelievable. I get I'll do anything. Every piece of cake, I'm going to stop to get that 110. The other one says you're 220, 260, and that's all the same. Who cares? The way that you're able to get yourself to overcome something is not if you're say you say, you know what? I can't do this sin because of sin. But when he says, I might be Yosef HaTzadik. I might be Ola. I might be a sacrifice. God might appear to me. How can I do this if God might appear to me? I'll give you a better example. The, I, I think I work pretty hard. I think I work pretty hard. Classes from the morning to the night and school and learning. I think I work pretty hard. But there's one person that impresses me that I can't get over how hard this guy works. Can't get over it. Can't believe, like, I have no idea how he has the strength to do what he does. And that is Barack Obama. I can't, no, I'm serious. I can't believe it. The man campaigned for two years. And in some days of his campaign, he would go to seven different cities in one day. He'd make a speech here and make a speech there and make another speech there and be on TV here and there and have a debate here and... The day of his convention, he was in six different cities. Like, they're doing the convention wherever, I forgot where it was. was where was the convention? Iowa? I don't know. Wherever his convention, oh no. Chicago. Chicago. He did the convention in Chicago? And yeah, so he's having his convention in Chicago, but he was all over the country. All the Democrats were in Chicago, but he was all over the country that day. And this is what I couldn't get over the most. The day after he won, the next day he was planning his cabinet. What are you, what are you doing? You just won. If that's me, I win. The next day, I'm going to Turnberry for four days. Right? Now, okay, for three days. But how, how does he do it? Every day, all day, how does he do it? You know what the answer is? It's very simple. Very simple. He knows he's going to be the President of the United States. When you think of yourself as the President of the United States, then you know what? You push yourself and you find limits and you find strengths that you never even knew in the world. Because you know what? Every move I make is leading the world. I choose a cabinet member. I'm not just like just deciding, you know, what my kids should eat for dinner tonight. I'm deciding the future of the commerce of the United States of America. If I decide who's going to be my science advisor, it's deciding it's $2 billion in the budget or half of $5 billion in the budget. If I decide who's going to be my Secretary of State, it's every decision I'm making is huge, world-affecting. So if it's such a dramatic thing, you know what? You keep finding strength, you keep pushing and pushing. The rest of us say, yeah, you know what, what am I going to do? So I'm going to put a little more effort. It's going to help a little more, a little less. Take a vacation. So my kids don't have dinner for me this week. Eh, big deal. They'll get it next week. It's not changing the world. When you think you're changing the world. So for yourself to say, you know what, I can't commit a sin. I'll say, yeah, you know what, I've done sins before. I'll do a sin. It's not going to kill anyone if I do a sin. But if he says to himself, you know what, I might be an Ola. I might be this great. I might be someone who's deserving that God's going to appear to me. I have to be on that level. I have to be ready. Again, I'll give you another example of this where you, when you have a greater goal, you're able to do it. Whereas if you just think of yourself as not that big a deal, you ever notice sometimes you'll have two people and the person with more money 
is thriftier with her money than the person with less. You ever notice that? Sometimes you find a person with more money seems to be, you seem to be financially okay, but you're careful which store you're shopping and you look at your coupons and your receipts and you're careful. And you have this neighbor that as far as you know is really not doing well and they're buying and they're shopping and they're going out to eat and you're saying, where, where is it coming from? I'll tell you what it is. Is that when a person thinks that they can be fiscally responsible, financially responsible, they can handle all their finances. They say, you know what? I'm going to cut. I'm going to be careful in order to do it. But I know I have friends like this who once you get into like the credit card mode and you owe $10,000 on your credit card, so what's the difference? Another night about that it's not going to hurt anyone. If I know the 10000 10100 that we owe, I have no idea how I'm paying the credit card anyhow. So, swipe it again and swipe it again. This happens all the time. This is the, the biggest problem is that once you get into the credit card, well, you say, once you get to the point where you don't know how you're paying it, you just start using it much more. I'm telling you, I have friends like this. That once they got to that point that they said, you know what, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, they start spending. I'm like, what do you mean? Where do you have the money to do this? You have no money, and they're all saying, you're going out, you're going here, you're going on a vacation, you don't have, I'll use the card. What happens that once you give up, and you think, ah, it's no big deal, a little more money on the card, a little more debt, I owe 20000 I owe 25000 It's not a big, it's not a big story. But if you owe no money, and now you owe 5000 that's a big story. So again, the, the point of Yosef was his ability to see, to think big. And through the entire time, not think of himself as this little guy who's stuck in jail in nowhere. He looked at himself as Yosef Asadiq. And that's why I think the Pasuk earlier, my explanation is, by Hashem with Yosef, Hashem was with Yosef, but he ish matzliach. He was a man. He looked at himself as an ish. Ish means a person who's hashuv. He didn't look at himself as just a little slave in some guy's house. He looked at himself as Yosef. And through the entire 20 years, never forgot what he was. Never forgot what his talent is and what his strength is and what he's supposed to become. The, I'm going to give you this explanation. We didn't answer our questions, even though we're a little late, but we're okay. Answer the questions, and then I will end with a story of Bizat Hashem. Okay? Last week I did, right? Okay. So, we asked before, what was this whole plan with the money? I just want to show you with the money, one example of how calculated and thought out he was. His plan was like this. He figured, if I just put the cup in Binyamin's bag and nobody else's, the brothers are going to say, you, Binyamin, you're the thief. And you obviously stole this. And the rest of us are innocent. So what he tried to do is he deliberately wanted all the brothers to know that it's a game. So he put the money in all their bags. So that they all realized that we didn't steal this money. It ended up here because he put it in. So when they all see that it's a game, they're going to treat Binyamin with more care. And so he wanted them to see, wanted to see that they would defend Benjamin, but he wanted them not to accuse him. So he created this thing where Benjamin has extra, he has the cup also, but they all have the money. And that's why when the man came down, he checked every single bag. Because he wanted to open every bag of the brothers so that everyone sees that they have their money in it. Not that he takes, checks four bags and those four guys think they were stuck. Check every single bag so everybody knows they have the money so that they all sort of sense this doesn't make sense, and therefore, they're not going to ta- accuse Benjamin. You see how calculated and planned, and I asked you one question, I don't know if you even remember that I asked this question, was how come he, the, the, the messenger said, you're off, just Benjamin come. And then they come to Yosef again, and they say, let's be slaves. It's because when the messenger said, you're off, he was saying just about the cup. He was saying, he's the only one with the cup, the rest of you are scot-free. Then they came to Yosef and they said, but now maybe you want to take us for the money. We'll take, we'll become slaves because of the fact that we have the money. So there's sort of two steps. There's the cup. In that way, Benjamin was guilty. The rest were innocent. And then there's the money. In that way, they were all guilty. But you see what he was, again, it's just an example of his calculation, of his level of thought that he's, how well planned this is in this extremely emotional encounter when you're dealing with your family that you haven't seen in 20 years that tried to kill you and you know your father's waiting for you and you know your brother, looking at your brother Benjamin who didn't do anything to be able to stay composed through the whole thing and to th- thought out and plan like I said, like that quarterback with 11 monsters coming in his face and still able to throw the ball to still be able to deal with things and still stay disciplined. It's an unbelievable midah. It's a midah that if you have it and if you can train yourself to have it, it doesn't just give you strength, it gives strength to the people around you. 
is that sometimes when you see if you're, you deal with something and you look okay, your kids start to feel more okay. Your husband feels more okay. Because if she's not losing her mind, maybe it's not so bad. And that, and it's really true, is that if you're composed, your friends, even your friends, get strength from you with a person who has that kind of discipline and that kind of composure. Yosef was an ish throughout the entire thing. The story I'm going to tell you is not directly related, but it's a good story and to show you a man who again could be thought out and thinking at a time when most people wouldn't be thinking. There's a rabbi named Rav Palm. Rav Palm passed away a little while ago, seven, eight years ago. So he once called his grandson towards the end of his life when he was sick and weak. He called his grandson and he said, you know, I need your help. I have a lot of sifarim. I have a lot of books out in the dining room. Grandma's getting nervous. Could you come over and help me clean them up? I'm too weak. I can't take it down to the basement alone. Could you come? To, okay. Grandpa calls. You come. So they come to his house. Grandson comes to his house. He figures he'll be there 10, 15 minutes. He'll clean up the books. He'll bring him downstairs. He gets there and he sees a lot of books on the table, on the chairs. He's like, Grandpa, what is this? He says, you see, people sometimes, these are books that are written recently. Sephardi, they were written recently. And, you know, sometimes, he didn't say this, but I'm saying this, sometimes when a guy writes, a man writes a sefer, you like to give it to, like, the Gadol Hador, one of the big rabbis' generation, let him read my book, maybe he can better, you know. So all these authors gave me these sefarim over the past little while, maybe a few months. And to tell you the truth, I haven't had a chance to learn them or read them. I've been very sick, very weak, and tired, and busy with just whole Jewish people. Um, but he says, you know, before we bring them downstairs... I think out of respect to the authors, we should sit down and learn a piece from each sefer. And so they sat there for over three hours, taking open each book, studying a piece from the book, and closing the book one at a time, until they went through every single sefer. What I love about the story is the way he thinks. Think giving respect to someone that they don't even know they're going to receive. To be weak and old and sick. Most men in their upper 80s that are old and sick and tired are just thinking about how they get to their bed, how they take their pills, take care of their medicine and watch their TV shows that they need to see. But him to be that focused, to be able to, even when you're tired and old and weak and sick, and he would pass away only a couple of years later, this is the end of his life, to be in that mode and still be thoughtful of how you're handling yourself and how you're treating other people, other treating people that they're not even going to know. No one's ever going to know if I read the book, didn't read the book. You could easily say, oh, it's a great book. You don't have to read it. To read it, and then people aren't even going to come back and ask a rabbi, did you see this effort? To read it is to, again, to be composed, to be thoughtful, to be, to be calculated, even at a time when most people wouldn't be. Yosef HaSadiq had that. Yosef had that through the entire time in Egypt, he was an Ish. He was a man who knew what he wanted to do, had his goals way greater than the circumstance he was in, and understood that this sin, you know what, for a little slave stuck in Egypt, maybe this sin is normal. But for a man who's going to be maybe a sacrifice, for a man who's going to be great, and who eventually would be great, would be Yosef Asadik, the man who would bring the entire Jewish people down to Egypt, for that kind of person, it's not becoming. And so when you see yourself, you have to realize that you're not just this little situation you're in. And you can't get distracted and pulled and distraught and emotional over this current situation. It's just toys that Hashem gave you today. He's going to take away these toys and tomorrow He's going to give you new toys. Good toys, bad toys, in between toys. But every day He's going to give you different toys. So don't get exasperated. Don't get distracted. Be able to be focused and composed and disciplined. And if you're able to do that, like I said, it won't just give yourself strength. It'll strengthen your family. It'll strengthen your kids. It'll strengthen your spouse. It'll strengthen your friends. It'll, be, it'll strengthen anyone that knows you. Baruch Amen